the Cubs Related Podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Corey. I am joined as always by Brendan and we are coming to you on August 25th. It is a very rainy, humid day in Chicago, Illinois. It's about 10 Central. The Cubs and Rockies just wrapped up Game 2 of the doubleheader that took place on Wednesday after Tuesday's game was rained out. Cubs take 2 of 3 in this series. I I don't remember. When was the last time we discussed the Cubs winning a series, Brendan? I don't know what, like May of this year, maybe May. a little bit early in June. Yeah. I honestly don't know. That's, that's I, a serious response, Corey. I, I legit, I don't know it, and it could yeah. have been like the other series, and I just wouldn't remember. It's not, but I, it all just sort of blurs together at this point. But the Cubs do pick up two games in this one. We have a uh, Rafael Ortega walk-off home run, which was a lot of fun on Monday night. Then, like I said, the game on Tuesday is postponed due to rain. So we get a double header on Wednesday with two seven-inning games, the latter of which ended up going uh, extra innings, quote-unquote, uh, 10 innings in that one. Rockies pulling that one out to avoid the sweep, and that is all that she wrote for that series. So we have plenty to talk about. We saw Justin Steele. Again, we have more going on in the lower levels of the Cubs organization. Some exciting stuff going on there. Uh, And that comes from someone, as you guys know, I've said a million times that I'm not necessarily a big prospect guy, but this is where we're at, Brendan. But it was... uh, This was an interesting series because the Rockies aren't good. You're kind of getting away from the weekend. The weather here in Chicago has been pretty bad, and it's it's still quite weird. I guess we're a little desensitized to it because we just got through the 2020 season where there were no fans at all. But boy, is Wrigley Field not not empty, but it's it's empty. empty. It's basically empty. It's empty, man. Yeah, so like I was actually thinking about that watching the second game of the doubleheader and it's like oh it kind of feels as if it did during the COVID season with no fans behind home plate I know there was a you know lightning delay and everything but even when the fans came back it's like no one there it's 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 kind of it's kind of bizarre and then you see absolutely no household names in in that lineup and it goes to the point of like Jason Hayward and, and Patrick Wisdom leading the promotions for MLB MLB's big event next year in the Field of Dreams game it's like all right like what like how much money are they losing here doing this? Like a genuine question. How how much are they losing here? That I don't know. We'd have to get someone more in tune with their financials, and I assume they keep that at least somewhat close to the chest. But I, this goes back to like, and and you know, this isn't like an I told you so because it it wasn't exactly a super like uh, genius take on my part, but I did note this a lot when we talked about the extensions for some of the core guys and when they traded Darvish and stuff like that. If you guys were listening to us when we talked about that stuff, I said all the time that there had to be a point where people's interest just wasn't as strong anymore. And especially post-World Series, once they finally won the big one, right, in 2016, there just was not that same fervor to be at Wrigley Field all the time and that willingness to spend on very expensive tickets, very expensive ballpark experience, etc. And, you know, look, like, I don't know. So I'm looking at the box scores right now. And Mm -hmm. on Monday, they say that there was 25,000. And then for the first game, 
on Wednesday, they say 24,000. Now, I assume also about 25-ish for the second game on Wednesday. So we know that this is maybe bought tickets because no way were there 25,000 people. How does that work, Corey? Like, let's say you have a ticket like as a season ticket holder and your game gets postponed. Do you just like get an updated ticket on your phone to go to the doubleheader? Well, for the doubleheader, the ticket for Tuesday was Wednesday night. And then Wednesday during the day was the original Wednesday game. But so like when they announce those numbers, I'm assuming that's paid tickets because I watched this game on Wednesday night. There's no way there was 25,000 people there. I'd say 10,000 maybe, right? It was was empty. I mean, completely empty. And it it all just get the the point I'm making is, so they're around 25,000 for every game in this series. Now, Wrigley Field capacity, depending on standing room only, things like that, it's around 41,000, right? So that's a pretty Mm -hmm. significant dip even if that's the paid gate or whatever it is, right? Paid gate, people that came, I don't know what it is. I don't know if them losing 16,000 people a night matters to them, right? Like it's very possible that with all the, the investments and real estate and, and things that they have their, their you know hand in in the neighborhood, Mm-hmm. that it all is one big thing the money comes from a bunch of different places and if it's 30,000 instead of 41,000 20,000 I don't know what number it has to be for the business operations people or the Ricketts to actually care but the reason that I, I I'm dialing in on this is because it goes to what I was talking about that whole time which is I I always disagreed with the notion that they could get away with doing whatever they want and people will still show up, right? Maybe that was true before they won the World Series in 2016. But what we're seeing now is like when there's no marketable names and you've traded the the people who are, you know, as we've sort of speculated, like 90% of the jerseys that you would see at the games, right? In, in Rizzo, Bryant, and Baez and other guys that have left throughout the years. they're not going to get 40,000 people there. They're not going to fill up the stadium if there's not that investment on the field. And again, I don't know if that matters to them. I I have legitimately no idea if that matters to them, what their break-even point is, what their margins are on all of this. I have no clue if this matters to them. But you're seeing it, right? Like there is no question that if they don't make a concerted effort to even like make it seem like they're trying to win on the field. The days of 40,000 people packing that stadium like blindly, it it's over. And this was happening before they traded anybody at the deadline. Once the the spiral started on that losing streak after the Dodgers series and it was mm-hmm. clear they were going to sell, they were dipping down closer to like 37, 36, and it's just slowly like gotten worse, right? So right. it they're they're just not going to show up no matter what, man. Yeah, I don't think so either. And kind of like I remember during those 2010, 2011 seasons, like you didn't see the bleachers full. And the attendance, the average around that time was like in the low 30,000s, which is, you know, about 70, 75% of your capacity at Wrigley Field. Now, like Cub fans are nuts, right? So you have people like you and me who are going to be watching these games as we did tonight, like complete psychos. And, And those fans aren't going away. But those fans aren't the tipping point for your revenue machine 
And so even though the Cubs did get rid of Chris Bryant and Rizzo and everyone and they're tanking, they still save money that way, even with losing gate revenue. You think about KB's contract. They saved about, I right. think it's going to be around $8 million for Rizzo. It's around the same exact Some of those uh, contracts price. they paid off, though, to get better prospects, but not all of them. Not all of them, though, right? Right. They just gave away a lot of guys, so right. they're 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 trading. You know, they're they're saving money that way. The consequence that is my fear is the long term effect of not gaining new fans this season, as well as losing fans as a result of this entire process. Right. right? Like you you look around the stadium or around Wrigley and you see. Chris Bryant jersey still, Anthony Rizzo jersey still, Baez jerseys. And Baez is one of the top grossing jersey sales from Major League Baseball. And so what is the consequence of that in a media environment that is rapidly changing? Where about eight years ago, the Arizona Diamondbacks are getting TV deals for a billion dollars, a legit billion dollars. And now the Cubs, just this past two years, struggled to get their TV deal. So the the market's changing, the media environment's changing, and my concern is we'll be looking back like during this type of era in ten years, and be like oh man, like that was a mistake. That type of feel that you got from the WGN era, and you know kids like me who moved away from Chicago and got to watch the Cubs game, that type of feel and connection to the team may not be as prominent. So what is what do the Cubs look like ten, twenty, thirty, forty years from now? Um, I'm not sure. And this is, you know, this is just one season. This is not going to determine determine their future, but it does, in my opinion, kind of reflect the potential for underestimating fan interests when you break the team up right. like this. That's my that's my concern. And then in doing so, the T V deal, and there's a lot of people who work on that network that are like truly good people and good at what they do. Like Tony and he's really good at what he does. Cubs Productions have made some phenomenal videos. Post-game staff, I think, is really good. But at the same time, it's like they're kind of missing the boat. Like a lot of complaints about the three-men booths, a lot of complaints about even being able to access the network over the years. It's like you're kind of, you know, you're pushing people away. And there is a concern for me on that end. Yeah, well, getting into marquee would be a, a whole a whole separate thing. I, yeah. I I don't think any of us like the the three man booths. We, you and I no. were talking on Twitter, like especially with Sutcliffe, who is wildly negative. It's really weird, dude. It's weird. It man. is weird. Like, I didn't know I mean, he was he's that very negative. negative, and and not not and and this isn't like I'm not asking him to, you know, uh, pretend like the team isn't bad or anything like that, but. Like, there's a, a fine line between that and, like, you know, overt homerism and, like, pretending like things are great. But, like, you know, watching that steal start on Wednesday in the, in the first game, it's it's or in the second game, it's his third career big league start. And, I mean, something is just him. ragging on him. I mean, just, like, totally dogging him throughout the start about it's not being able weird, to put man. hitters away and this and that. And like you can tell, like JD and Boog are like kind of taken aback. They like they don't know what to say. Where they're like, "Oh, right. he's like working on stuff, man." Like he's, I did notice he's a, that he's it's, a young guy. Like, yeah, that was very like weird. I, but to your to your point about like you know building fans, like that's one of the interesting things. And I've talked to uh, you know some friends of mine and people I've gone to the games with and stuff. Like it's a weird spot where right now I I don't own a jersey uh, that has a player's name on it that's currently on the team anymore. I had a Lester, a Bryant, and a Rizzo were my, my you know, string of jerseys for the last, like, six years. And so now I don't own one that has a current player's name on it, which was a very sobering realization when I 
thought of that uh, the first time after the trade deadline. That's why I don't buy player name jerseys, dude. Yes, I, I but I'm a, I'm a grown man. I like to I wear other grown men's names on my How does that make jerseys. you feel? Do you feel powerful when you do that, when you put on like a Chris Bryant jersey? Yeah. I bet it does. Yeah, yeah. it does. I get it. I um, get it. But like now, I, I, I want to get a new one at some point. I don't know who to get. I would give wisdom, man. Right? And I would, I would unbutton it like the way he does. Right now. Don't wear an undershirt, shave your arms. That's I love Patrick Wisdom, but that's jumping the gun. The, the point I'm making is like it's about safety, right? Like how comfortable am I that this person's even going to be on the team at <laughs> Emotional this safety. Yeah. yeah. Well, and just purchase <laughs> safety. Like I don't, you know, like even like Wilson Contreras right now. Like are we I'll all positive going he's going to be on this team? For the next even several Kyle years, Hend- even Kyle Hendricks, like at you this don't point, know. you just never know. Yeah. yeah. So, so that I think is the reason I bring that up is because I think that's that's one of those things about you're trying to build new fans. You don't even you're not even giving people guys to latch onto, right? We saw mm-hmm. the effect that someone like Javi Baez had on so many kids in Chicago and, you know, really anyone watching him in terms of how they modeled their own playing and and the flashiness and, and, and the gear and stuff like that. And you don't really have anybody that you're giving people uh, at the moment to do that. And, and you know, another thing with the the current state of things you look at that saving Wrigley documentary all that stuff about Wrigley Field and stuff like that and right now it has that feel and we've seen this before of kind of promoting Wrigley Field over the team right and you know you're talking to two people who if I could live at Wrigley Field I would if they if they allowed me to never leave I would live there and never leave but that's not that's not the that doesn't work you know what i'm saying and and this yeah, is well i think the, the counter to that though is well it kind of worked in the late 2000s early 2000s when yeah but dude like there was always the there was always that you're chasing that world series right. and it, like when it's, they got it's good, not they there anymore really drew. Right. and now i i and you know i don't know if this was always the case or whatever but they now have the highest ticket prices in the league and so that's where it's like, okay, you need more than Wrigley Field to sell this place out and to have that relentless yeah. energy there every night. And it all just goes back to the point that I was always making when we would talk about this stuff was just that I, I always believed that the business ops portion of this team and ownership were under were overestimating just how much people's no matter what attitude would exist, right? Yeah. Just overestimating that they could get away with whatever. And I don't know what they're going to do this off season. And, you know, some of this stuff in, in certain ways has been necessary to bring about change, things like that. Like, yeah, it's, it's a nuanced conversation, but just bringing things full circle to how we started talking about this, you're seeing 20, you know, you're seeing 16,000 people below sold out at eat at all these games and that's you know the weather hasn't been good here in Chicago it's been very hot very humid but it's still summer right like you're gonna head into September the weather's gonna get worse it'll get a little chillier like kids go back to school stuff like that so these numbers should probably get worse as time goes on and it's 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 just one of those things where you hope that this matters I guess right 
that that the ownership and the business ops guys are looking at this going like we have to commit on the field to this team or we can't just take for granted that these people are going to keep showing up in droves yeah i i still am operating under the mindset that they're going to spend some some money this offseason and the the reason i say that is because even during the theo rebuild they still attempted to sign Annabelle sanchez for 75 million dollars that fell through then they signed Edwin Jackson for almost $50 million, at $48 million. So they still went out and spent money. And I think given the flexibility, they're going to do the same thing this year, even if those guys are intended to be flipped in a non-competitive season. But just backtracking, when you're talking, and I'm listening, when you're talking about the, the, the ownership group or whomever's in charge of the network and all this stuff and making these decisions about underestimating these fans showing up, I think it's not really that. I, I, I think they're underestimating or having a, a potential blind spot that this media environment is going to be stable. And it, it's it's just not. I think they've already made mistakes with the TV network to have to go out and get a partner like Sinclair. Obviously, the money didn't come through with the TV network, and this is before COVID even happened, right. where we wouldn't have seen these monetary restrictions for the payroll. We heard for years, Corey, Theo saying for years, by 2019, oh, we're going to have all the money in the world because of the ad revenue from the video board and the TV network. And that ultimately never materialized because they kind of missed the boat on that media environment. So my my concern is not so much that they're underestimating the, the fans, that's part of it. The full picture is they're underestimating how they can sell this team with this type of media right. construction at, at this point. And when I see how they operate the marquee network, it does give me some hesitancy. Yeah. I've never, I never had the experience of going on Twitter and seeing so much... Uh, I mean, hate is a strong word, but I, maybe it is the, is the right word. So much hate towards the network. Like, we were spoiled for years with Len Casper and, and JD. Never had those conversations about, like, NBC Sports Network or ABC7 or WGN. Never. Like, it was always just, like, a stable feature. So, in that sense, I'm disappointed, but I'm also worried that this TV network is just not going to sustain fans. Like, that's just what it comes down for me. I don't see people um, clean to this right now. And and having Wrigley be a staple to attracting fans, I think is a good idea. But to your point, I don't think it's going to be the the main feature that's going to sustain a level of a, of attention that ultimately brings you like a top top payroll every year. That's going to have to come through extra media uh, extra media goals through your TV network, social media, all that stuff. I just don't see that happening, Corey. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's going to be interesting going forward uh, to see what happens. You know, we've been waiting basically, you know, all this time just to sort of see what happens. Like we keep hearing all of this stuff from Jed and from Tom and from Crane Kenny about how their goal is to build the next great Cubs team and build the next Cubs World Series team, and we're all just kind of waiting for when we see the action toward that actually happening, right? And we're really not going to know, oh, they were telling the truth or they were lying or whatever until we get to, I guess, this offseason and we sort of see yeah. 
what this all looks like. Now, that's, of course, going to get complicated with the collective bargaining agreement, and there's some stuff there that, you know, definitely does affect how you operate a baseball team. And until some of that stuff is decided, that is going, it, it may seem like an excuse at times, but at least in some regards, that is going to legitimately affect things and how you want to go about doing your business. But we're going to have to wait. It's, it's basically just what it is. But I just thought it was interesting to point out coming off of now, you know, of course, it was a double header. And sometimes those are usually not as as jam packed. But it's just jarring, like watching these games and like, there's just nobody there. And it, it well, just and TV, atten- TV viewership is down 30% from 2019. Yeah. It's down almost 20% from last year. The average decline is 12%. So, so they're almost double the, the decline from your average viewership. So that that's this is the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. What 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 is going on here? There is there is a di- a definite disconnect between what the Cubs how the Cubs envisioned all of this working, right? In terms of attendance, in terms of TV viewership, the reception of marquee things like that, yep. and what is <laughs> like actually happening in in reality. Like clearly so there is the, a disconnect there. Yeah. That and that's just like a leadership um, top level administration issue well, right I've, something's yeah something's not clicking up top well, there yeah i've <laughs> my parents always taught me if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all but i've offered my opinion of crane kenny's uh, business acumen on this podcast before so you guys can fill in the blanks with uh what i think the problem is with most of this stuff um, i mean like but, but here's here's where i fall back on Corey, and maybe this is just me being irrationally optimistic like i do think they're going to spend money this offseason i think it'd be such a grave mistake not to spend money that they're gonna well do i think it. yeah i mean i think that ultimately is the takeaway from this yeah. you know first 20 minutes of our conversation here they have to they they, they have, have to. got no to choice. give people something to latch on to in it, because you're seeing what happens when they don't, right? When they signal we are not competing, this is the team. They're not. They're not going to be good. We've we've made these moves. People don't show up. You're yeah, watching or it. watch or they don't right watch or watch network. on TV. Yeah, people are just <laughs> yeah. there. There's way too much going on in the world in the media. It's there. It, it's clear they have to. And that doesn't mean that they are going to spend. What I, I think that I read today, the Dodgers' payroll is like two hundred and sixty million dollars or some absurd thing. Like it doesn't mean that they're going to do that or that they have to do that. But they can't do this, right? They can't do what we're looking at right now and still expect people to have that, uh, you know, same level of excitement. But anyway, that's enough on attendance on all this other stuff. There is some actual baseball stuff to talk about. Um, again, not going to do a deep recap of these games, but did want to mention again on Monday, the Cubs winning that one, a nice little comeback there. Uh, they score five unanswered runs in the eighth and ninth inning, capped by a Rafael Ortega walk off home run. That was a fun moment. And I didn't really realize this at the time. Uh, I, we had talked about how long it had been since they had won at Wrigley Field, but when it's, it, it, you know, it was 13 games, It you sort of forget that they're on the road for part of that time. So it didn't dawn on me until it happened that the last time prior to Monday that they had won at Wrigley Field, like, was the Javi Baez Amir Garrett walk-off. <laughs> Is that what it was? <laughs> and I, that, when I read that, I was like, wait a minute. It was like almost like a something was wrong with like the space-time continuum. It's like— I mean, that feels like it was two years ago. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it was a completely different roster, a completely different team. That's crazy. 
and that that was weird to think about. But yeah, that was the the previous win at at Wrigley Field uh, was a completely different looking Chicago Cubs. But that was fun. Uh, the Cubs do win the first game of the doubleheader. Patrick Wisdom with a game winning home run in the bottom of the fifth. That was also seven innings, so uh, technically the later innings there. His 21st of the year, so we've obviously talked about him a lot. This one uh, went to Waveland again, so that's his second blast to Waveland uh, in just a few days. He did one over the weekend there as well, and then again, uh, they lose the finale uh, 13-10 to in 10 innings, which uh, technically is three extra innings because it was a seven-inning game. So, the first place to start, I suppose, is let's just talk about Justin Steele real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Justin Steele starting the second game of the doubleheader. Zach Davies started the first game of the doubleheader, and then Kyle Hendricks pitched the game on Monday. Three and two-thirds, five hits, four earned, two walks, and five strikeouts for Justin Steele. Two of those runs uh, being allowed by McGill, who came in to relieve him and promptly gave up a grand slam. Didn't love that decision by David Ross, and you could see that Justin Steele was pretty pissed about it, but at this Which point... Which I like that, by the way, from Steele. Like, I love that attitude, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm just... it. You know, like, let it's it's the fourth inning. Like, just let him try to get through it. I, I You know, and then you bring yeah. in McGill, who immediately blew the lead. It was like, okay, I mean... But at this point, I'm not really going to get too deep into the the pitching decisions that David Ross is making. But as always, you know, not necessarily a, a deep dive, but anything worth noting from Steele. Five strikeouts, uh, you know, so certainly good to see him getting more in that calm. The two walks isn't great. Uh, and then, of course, you know, still working on efficiency as it was 73 pitches in just mm. those three and two-thirds. But overall, anything jump out to you that's different from the last couple outings or worth noting or just sort of another building block for him? I mean, if we kind of just regroup and look at how he pitched in his first start, second start, and third start, this third start was basically identical to to his attack in his second start. Identical because he threw mostly four-seamers and then mostly sliders as his secondary pitch. And then he sprinkled in a few curveballs, a few sinkers, a few change-ups, and that's more or less what he did against um, in, his, in his second start. The first start was very different because he threw a ton of sinkers, threw a ton of change-ups, threw more curveballs. And I think that's why you saw the walks were down in that start and he was a little bit more efficient and the strikeouts weren't there so in the second start more whiffs more strikeouts command you know not the best third start same story so i think that's just where you have to continue to monitor is that pitch usage will he go back to the sinker as a more primary pitch in these uh future starts here or will he just become that four seamer slider guy with other secondary pitches to complement those two pitches i don't know what the best uh path forward is i i kind of trust hadavi and breslow to guide him with that appropriate optimal pitch usage but i i was intrigued more in that first start because his usage was dramatically different than what we saw when he was out of the bullpen. And I was kind of excited and hoping that would continue because it was such an extreme. Now, I'm still excited about Steele going forward. Uh, it's, just in a, it's just in different ways. But this is all to say, too, that if he goes out in his fourth star and all of a sudden he's throwing more sinkers and change-ups, then 
it's going to tell us that they're still tinkering with stuff and trying to find that that best type of of sequencing. Overall, he's in my mind going to be part of this rotation next year in some capacity. For me, it's just a matter of okay, is he going to be you know a fifth swing starter type guy in the same vein as an Alec Mills over the last few years, or is he going to be you know that number four starter, someone that you can staple in? And my hope is by the end of September, we have an, a, a relatively confident idea of which role that's going to be. All right, I think that's fair and a nice update on Justin Steele. So I, I want to ask you about Kyle Hendricks uh, for mm. a moment, and per yeah. usual, I want to frame this by saying that this is not me ask, you know, being worried about Kyle Hendricks or anything like that, uh, because Kyle Hendricks is just that dude, and even if this isn't his best season, I just don't really pay too much mind to, like... Kyle Hendricks in general, because I just trust him. And like I said, he's just that dude. But I I did just want to get your perspective. Um, Of course, coming off of 2020, so you kind of aren't really sure what to make of a lot of pitchers, really, just coming off of such an odd season and then ramping back up here for 2021. Uh, But just curious what you're seeing from Kyle. So if, if the season ended today, this would be uh, the worst ERA of his career at 4.09 and the worst FIP of his career, 4.64. So, you know, just adding that number as it's not, you know, a huge uh, discrepancy in terms of him getting unlucky or something like that. And just curious... If if there's something you're seeing with him that's that's leading to him not necessarily getting better results, um, if there's anything, you know that I, again I I don't like to use the word concern with him, but anything that stands out to you that sort of explains hey this is why it's it's not a sort of vintage Kyle Hendricks season uh, that we're seeing because really you know overall in terms of the numbers this would be his worst year since 2015, which was his first sort of full year, uh, you know, getting uh, 32 starts, 180 innings. The one trait that jumps out is his whiff rate with change-ups. I don't know what's going on there. I'm not concerned about it, but that's that's the explanation for why his ERA is up this year. In 2016, 2017, even before that, like 2015, his whiff rate on his changeup was among the best in Major League Baseball. Among the best in Major League Baseball since data started being tracked for whips on individual pitch types. Now it's around 12 to 13%. So it's down quite a bit from his peak. Again, I don't know why that is. He's changed the way he's sequenced since 2015. Uh, predominantly how he uses his fastball. He used to throw a four-seamer like 7% of the time. Now it's around 20% of the time. And most of his four-seamers are thrown up in the zone. Similar to a sinker, a sinker is thrown all over the place, but a lot more up in the zone. And so accordingly, his fastball whiffs have nearly doubled because of that. But within the last two years now, his changeup whiff rate has gone down. So my thinking is, is twofold. My first thought is, hitters are sitting on his changeup more. And the reason I think this is because when I watch like the Milwaukee games or the St. Louis games, it just looks like guys are sitting on it. I feel like Goldschmidt's sitting on these good changeups and and 
a lot of other guys are too. So that that might be the first reason. The second reason is looking at the zone profile of his changeup this year versus his best year in 2016. The command is a little bit more variable this year. A few more changeups are being left up in the zone, more than what we've seen in years past. And so now I think that second reason, the, the command reason, might be the overwhelming reason, not hitters sitting on it, although that could be part of the reason. So why isn't Kyle commanding his changeup as, as good as he used to? I don't know. Um, is that something to be worried about? I don't know. I'm not really worried about it. That is 100% the reason, though, of why he's not preventing more runs. And with Kyle, you just kind of have to trust the process Mm -hmm. with him. He had a great 2020. He eventually figured it out. He had a very bizarre 2017 and 2018, where his velocity dipped like almost two miles per hour, and and he he figured it out. So I'm going to go and bet on that track record with Kyle and just kind of chalk up some of these excessive runs that we've seen this year to just... Maybe some randomness, maybe a little bit of a blip in his career trajectory. Ultimately, I think he's going to figure it out. I do as well, but as always, this was another uh, pleasant visit into Brendan and Tommy Hadovy's laboratory. <laughs> One day we'll get Tommy on here to. Uh, Can you imagine that if we actually did that? I don't even know if I would be able to talk. I, I'd figure. You'd it out. have wow. to. Are you kidding? I know. I just, I just be like Tommy. Just keep talking. I'm listening. <laughs> That would be uh, assuredly, and this sounds weird for two guys who sit here and talk about this team for five years, but that would assuredly be the nerdiest episode of the Cubs-related podcast <laughs> that we could possibly bring to you. Um, yeah, I, I, there, there would be a lot of Z-scores and horizontal spin rates and whatever else you text me that I try to decipher but am not smart enough to understand. You love it. You love it. I love it when you're te- when the the conclusion is that somebody on the Cubs is good. That's that's when I love it. Um, but okay, no, I I just wanted to check in on that because I, I I think you know at some point we're getting pretty deep into this year here. Uh, Kyle's over 150 innings, and you know just looking at the numbers was just curious if there was. Uh, I I don't want to I don't want to say explanation for the numbers. You know, not being kind of in line with his career numbers. Well, that's what it is. I mean, that's what yeah. it is. It's just that that changeup is a little bit leaky lately, and that's what's happening. It's okay. All right. Well, Kyle, if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you already figured that out, but. Um, there you go. There's Brendan's diagnosis for you. So want to, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't think Brendan that you have anything to offer on Zach Davies, I assume. No, I don't want to see him ever again. Okay. That's what I can offer. Yeah. Uh, there you go. So yeah. we will leave the starting pitching portion of, of Brendan's lab here and head to the bullpen where we have continued to see some interesting things. And one guy who I don't think we've really talked about too much on here since he was acquired along with Nick Madrigal for Craig Kimbrell is Cody Hoyer. And I I will preface this by saying that is how I've heard his name pronounced. It is spelled H-E-U-E-R. I believe on Marquee, uh, Boog has said Hoyer. So that's what I'm going with. If I am butchering that, I apologize. Brendan is subsequently also going to butcher it because we agreed on (laughs) how to say it together. So Hewer. Yeah, I don't think it's Hewer, but we're going with Hoyer. Uh, Cody, or we could just call him Cody, but he's got a no, 1.3. I want to challenge myself here. I want to challenge myself. We're going, we're going with Hoyer. Yes, okay. So 
He's got a 1.35 ERA in 13 and a third innings with the Cubs, uh, just a 14% K rate with the Cubs, but has that velo. And if you read some of the reports, it sounded like that was the name that really pushed that deal over the edge for Jed Hoyer, uh, that he wanted Cody included here. And that's kind of, you know, they, they, they targeted Madrigal, but that the inclusion there was, was really big to kind of pushing that trade over the finish line. So wanted to just take a look at him, and we've mentioned him before, but Manny Rodriguez as well uh, continues to look like a, a pretty interesting option out there. Pitching the game on Monday, uh, a clean inning, no hits, no runs, no walks, and just a strikeout. Limited sample size, but a 2.7 ERA so far in the year. Again, another guy with that velo, and it's we're going to continue to see them, and ultimately, you're going to have to figure out what roles you like for these guys. Rowan Wick also back out there. He's he's working his way back. Um, you know, now that he's back up with the big league team, pitched a clean inning with a strikeout in the finale on Wednesday, 3.18 ERA so far on the year. And really on Wednesday, I think looked a lot more like himself, really crisp on those pitches, a lot of movement uh, on the pitches, getting some whiffs. But interesting stuff in this bullpen. And while you, you see some guys who are not as interesting, you know, McGill has struggled mightily, Rex Brothers has struggled mightily as the year has gone on, you're you're still seeing some future-oriented guys, and I think what really stands out is we're finally seeing the Cubs, as we've noted uh, in the last couple of years, you're finally seeing them start to work with guys that have that higher velo, right? So you can sort of start to envision them having a back end of the bullpen that's just pumping gas. And, you know, Rodriguez and Hoyer and Wick, um, you know, they're all at different stages in, in their career and, and level of interest. But some really intriguing stuff in this Cubs bullpen, Brendan. Hoyer is interesting. I, I did not expect some of these peripherals to look so good. So the peripherals that I was surprised to see included his fastball velocity. I know he throws 96, but when you put it in context of what guys usually face, his fastball velo is better than 90% of pitchers. So that that's, in the, you know, of course, top 10th percentile. But it's also coupled with fastball spin as in the 70th percentile. So he has a little bit more... Uh, spin on his fastball than guys are typically used to seeing. And his overall mechanics, if we look at his like release point, he kind of slings it in there. It's almost, um, I'm trying to find like a good comparison. The one guy that comes to mind is like Justin Masterson for Cleveland and Boston many years ago. Kind of has this like long arm action, a little bit more horizontal. And in doing so, this is a crazy. This is a crazy number that jumped out to me. I didn't realize it was this good. His chase rate, his induced chase rate, so swings on pitches outside the zone, is better than almost ninety-five percent of pitchers. Corey, that's really good. That's really really good, and it's not sacrificing command. So on the year, he has a walk per nine rate of only two and a half batters. Really good. So he's able to induce a lot of swings outside the zone while also not having to walk guys by throwing those pitches outside the zone. That's what makes a reliever good. So I I'm I knew Hoyer was good. I didn't realize some of his numbers were this good. I'm also impressed too by his pitch repertoire. 
I like how he throws three different pitches very frequently. So typically, as we know, with a lot of relievers, they have two good pitches. Kimbrough is a great example. He has a good fastball, a good knuckle curve, and that's all he needs. Now he's a Hall of Fame pitcher. Hoyer is different. He has three pitches. He has a four seam, he has a slider, and he has a changeup. And he throws that four seam half the time, then his slider and his changeup 25% of the time separately. That's three pitches, man. And I'm almost wondering, I'm like, does he have the stamina to come out of the rotation? Like, because that's, that's impressive to be throwing three pitches with that much frequency out of the bullpen. Overall, you have to be excited about it. Uh, when you look at him and you see how Rowan Wick is pitching, in addition, as well as Manny Rodriguez, it's like, wow, even trading away to Para and, and Chaffin and, and Campbell, it's like, this bullpen's not really missing a beat towards the back end. And it does give you confidence that as the offseason goes along, as 2022 starts, they're going to figure out that bullpen if I'm already feeling this good about it. Yeah, so interesting stuff. And, you know, again, I think uh, that is certainly an area where there's a lot to look at. Um, some young guys in there, some 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 future-oriented stuff in that back end of the Cubs bullpen going forward here. So keeping on, on that theme, I know we don't always delve into the prospect stuff, but just it's hard not, it's hard not to, first of all. Uh, just given where things are. And obviously, you make all those trades, you want to pay attention to how these guys are doing. I mean, you want to win the trades, right? Like, I'm not rooting for Baez, Bryant, and Rizzo to be bad. Like, I want them to succeed. You kind of of are. Like, subconsciously, you're kind of like, oh, like, it's like you don't want to see someone look happier away from you, right? Like, you don't want to see them down, but you don't want to see them happier away from you. I want the Cubs to have won those trades. That they did it, so I want them <laughs> to right, have won those trades. That, that's sure. really what it yeah. comes down to. And in particular, um, one of the things that I want to at least just note is the promotion of Owen Casey to Myrtle Beach. So Myrtle Beach is extremely interesting at the moment uh, in, in terms, you know, we're always high toward the future, right? To quote Jed Hoyer from, uh, you know, these the off-seasons past. But they've been rolling out a lineup after they, they made some moves that has um, Christian Franklin, who's a Cubs recent draft pick from Arkansas, Kevin Maid, who's a, an 18-year-old shortstop, Jordan Wogu, who... Uh, is a recent Cubs drafter from a couple years ago. Who, Brendan, do you know where he went to school? I, every single time you're going to be doing this? Every single yeah, time. Yeah, and if I can help it, I'm going to make you say it. <sighs> or you can I'm just torpedo the podcast. I'll wait. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Well, I'll, it. I'll, 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 I'll be it. happy to tell you. Jordan Wogu went to the University of Michigan, uh, so he is a Michigan man. He was hitting third uh, the other day, and Owen Casey called up from the Arizona Complex League, who came over in the U Darvish trade, was playing left. And that team, not to discount the other guys on the team, but just uh, in terms of guys who really like jump out at you and we're, we're all kind of really watching, Ed Howard also on that team. So Marquis has been showing some of those games uh, occasionally. But Myrtle Beach, uh, you know, Brennan Davis isn't there, and I think he's the person who most of us are most interested in at the moment. But in terms of just like getting, being able to have your eyes on as many people who are really interesting for the Cubs' future, Myrtle Beach seems to be the place to go right now. But I, I wanted to just note on Owen Casey in particular because he came over in that Darvish deal. Now, he's not the only player from that deal that has been doing well and succeeding. But 
he's he's the first one that that gets this call up and is you know now playing at Myrtle Beach after he slashed 349 478 596 which was good for a 1074 OPS in the Arizona Complex League in 109 at bats and the reason that I wanted to highlight this and his call up and and what he's done even so far in Myrtle Beach is because that the Darvish deal was was so maligned, right? And and justifiably so. The the team was coming off winning a division and they made a trade that was almost assuredly dictated by money. And for all the reasons we talked about at the beginning and many that we've talked about before, that's not how the Chicago Cubs should be operating. And when you were watching this team go through the first couple months, while they were still competing, certainly would have still liked to have you Darvish, right? There were many, many moments where you were like, boy, be really nice to have a guy that's uh, fitting at that top end of the rotation. So since then, though, Darvish struggled for a bit, uh, had had a bad stretch of starts, and is hurt. So again, I'm not, I've always been rooting for you. I'm not rooting for him to fail, and I'm certainly not rooting for him to be hurt. Um, You know, Brendan and I love you, Darvish, so that is not how we hoped this would go. But it's just one of those things that want to circle back to that trade and how these guys do every so often because it was such a vitriolic reaction. And I don't say that about everybody else. I say that about me and Brendan in particular, along with everybody else. We were quite mad. You can go listen. That was an explicit version of this podcast. We were very mad. But again, kind of like we just talked about with Brizzo and and Javi, you want to win the trade, right? And given that it was a monetary mandate to make the move, and what we heard about the deal was that it was basically the Padres or nothing in terms of Jed Hoyer getting this done. It seems like he did pretty well for himself here. And I think looking at Casey in particular, already making a jump and just really rave reviews from the, the folks that were able to see him in the Arizona Complex League, this is at least a good start to winning that trade, I guess, Brendan. It's sure. not something like we're not going to get a verdict on that probably for years, right? But this is the progress that you want to see. Listen, you're not going to make me go on here and say, oh, yeah, that ended up being a, no, a good no, deal. No, no, no. I know. I I know. I know. I know. Let me let me finish. I get it. I get the I get the budget mandate by ownership. I, I get all of that. I disagree very much against having a mandate like that because of future implications from from revenue. I just do. Now, when it comes to the actual players coming back in that deal, I always operate, and this is just my, my, my principle, and this is why I'm talking to you on a podcast and not in a front office. I operate in principle that when you trade someone like you, Darvish, who still has a few more years of, of control at the time, coming off of that year, and absent of any type of severe injury, you have to get back some sort of immediate value. And the only immediate value they got back was in the form of Zach Davies. So I hated that. That Who being love, said, right? I, I, I love Zach Davies. But that being said, the prospects they got back, they clearly wanted quantity 
And to get quantity, you have to accept teenagers. You just That's just what Jed Hoyer had to do. He was not going to get back a prospect in high A or double A that was knocking on the door this year if you want to stock your farm system. So inherently, that's a risk. It is an exter- Imagine how dumb you were as a teenager. I, I, I speak for myself. So it's a huge risk. You and I are still dumb these. now. So <laughs> Very dumb now. But you, you accept that type of risk. For the current moment, the way that Preciado and Casey have developed, re- really good, really encouraging. Even Preciado down there in the Arizona Complex League is crushing it. Hitting home runs, he's not striking out that much, you know, hitting rockets over the field. He looks great. 880 Casey, OPS for a shortstop yeah, down man. there. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of, there's a lot, and we'll get, you know, Brian Smith of Bleacher Nation on here at some point. We had Greg Huss on here. Uh, recently, they 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 love the guy. They think he could be one of the better Cubs prospects in the system, if not that he already is. So you see the logic of what Jed was trying to do. He wanted to get back some form of immediate value with Zach Davies. I get that. You fill a gap in the rotation, and then you accept the quantity and the risk and the high ceiling with Casey and Preciado. So that's that's fine. I just wish it was a little bit. I'm not going to say if you kept Darvish that the season would be different, but at the same time, if you were to trade Darvish during the offseason, I, I wanted back some type of value for 2021. And who knows what could have happened. The Cubs had scouting restrictions due to COVID, personnel restrictions that influence who they could scout. And that's the problem I have. But here we are. We have Casey. We have Preciado. They're performing extremely well. And at least from a from Casey's perspective, extremely impressed. His swing looks really good. And the way he takes pitches and walks, he looks advanced. And at this point, like he's, he's he has to be on your radar as one of those top prospect guys. Yeah, and then taking a look at another name that came over at the trade deadline, not in the in the Darvish trade, but in the Chris Bryant trade, Alexander Canario, who I believe we've mentioned before because he hits absolute bombs. Just the the videos coming across on Twitter, just absolutely massive home runs. Uh, South Bend playing a game that got resumed on Wednesday, so part of it on Tuesday and then resumed on Wednesday. In in the first part, Canario hit a 473-foot opposite field home run in the sixth inning, and then tonight in the resumption in the ninth inning hit a grand slam, um, both just massive home runs. And you know, again, like these are lower levels. You still have to see this stuff bear out, but it's it's exciting to see at least some initial results from some of these guys. There's been some interesting stuff with some of the pitchers that we've seen at the lower levels. Again, you know, a lot of it with the velo. It's it's just exciting to see the Cubs having so many guys that are just touching upper 90s, hundreds, and stuff like that. Um, and you know, again, like I, I know that th- this isn't my thing, right? Like I, I've told you guys before, like when I worked in baseball, most of what I did was cutting video and it, it either involved college baseball or minor league baseball. And so I just don't like watching it anymore because I watched hours and hours and hours of it, uh, for work. But this is where the Cubs are at, and I can certainly get on board with digging into these guys' tools and checking in on, you know, just where they're going to fit in as we go along here. So at least, you know, just some exciting results, some exciting things going on at the lower levels here. 
I think you have to have excitement for this. It's it, and and with appropriate expectations, excitement not because they're going to be slam dunk guys. That's never how it typically turns out. But excitement because you have a ton of guys in the system who have crazy talent with high ceilings. And the more guys you get with that type of talent, the greater likelihood some of them pan out. And Canario is one of those guys. He's hitting moonshots, almost 500-foot homers, dude. And he's doing so like the dead center and a little bit towards that right center gap. And then he pulls the ball and hits absolute tanks. And just when you take the expectations that he's going to be a slam dunk guy out of the window and just enjoy what they're doing, it's more fun to follow. You have... Canario, you have a Contra, you have Preciado, Christian Hernandez, Ed Howard, Owen Casey, uh, Brennan Davis, Cole Roderer when he's back. The list goes on and on and on. And now we have a group of players that will be following on multiple levels. When 2022 starts, this is something to be excited about. You're going to have talent at the top portion of the system and then towards the middle and lower end of the portion of the of the system. We haven't had top level talent in a long time. And we're going to get that with Brennan Davis starting the year, presumably at AAA, knocking on win, uh, knocking on the window in maybe May, June, or July of 2022. So I, you had if you're going to watch baseball and follow this team, it's okay to be excited about Canario hitting home runs. It's 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 okay to have even at times like unrealistic expectations for some of these guys. That's that's what makes it fun. I think back in 20, uh, 2011, 20, 2012, we all thought, you know, I remember like on forums that Javi Baez was going to be drunk Carlos Stanton at shortstop. And he sort of was a little bit, but not really that degree of consistent like MVP caliber as Stan used to be. So it's it's this is part of the process, right? And for me, I I love watching these guys continue to develop. They're going to look so different within the next two years. Yeah, absolutely. And just sort of uh, capping things off, uh, you know, Brennan Davis, about an 880 OPS there at AA, 11 yeah, home runs. Killing it. Using the whole field, going the opposite way. He's really a lot impressive, of guys. If you haven't gotten yeah. a chance to watch any of those games, um, definitely check out, you know, Greg Huss, Brian Smith, any any of the guys that really dig into the minor league levels because usually they'll they'll share clips and it's it's not always just the highlights but even just impressive things that they see development developmentally from him in terms of swing mechanics pitch recognition things like that and really every every day that he plays I see something from Brennan Davis where you're just like man like this guy is a star he just has it, he's man. he's yeah, he he's extremely it. extremely talented um <laughs> at the game of baseball and it's it's very impressive and it's we're we're very fortunate that he is a Chicago Cup Thank God. All right, so back to losing. We have a three-game series against the Chicago White Sox. So this will go well. On Friday, we have Keegan Thompson for the Cubs, making his second start since coming back from Iowa. Thompson on the year, which mostly includes the bullpen, is 3-3 with a 2.42 ERA. He'll be facing Dallas Keuchel for the White Sox. Keuchel on the year, 8-7, a 4.71. ERA on Saturday, same start time, 4:10 p.m. Uh, 6:10 p.m. Rather, we have Alec Mills pitching for the Cubs, five and six, a 4.76 ERA. Lance Lynn pitching for the White Sox, 10 and three, with a 2.2 ERA. That signing going very well for the White Sox. 
And then to finish off this three-game set, we have Kyle Hendricks back on the mound for the Cubs on Sunday at 1.10 p.m. Central, facing Dylan Cease, the other portion of that Jose Quintana, Eloy Jimenez deal. Cease is having a good year. He is 10-6 with a 3.92 ERA. Looks like it's finally clicking for Cease. Hendricks on the year, now 14-5, a 4.09 ERA. What I'm looking for are more losses, boost that draft position, but only lose if the Cubs guys who are relevant are performing well. So you still want Patrick Wisdom to continue to hit homers. Rafael Ortega has been doing really well. You know he has that walk-off homer, which was special for him against the Rockies because he was drafted by the Rockies. And then I'm looking at Keegan Thompson as the main guy in this series. I want to see him go a little bit deeper. It's going to be a tough lineup against the White Sox. So if he has some success, it just gives him that much more confidence. I think it gives us that much more confidence. Yeah, so I, I Brendan, I, I, I think we're going to have to accept that the Cubs are not going to win the Crosstown Cup this year okay I know what about the playoffs I know it's so important to you um Brendan actually has a life-size replica of the Crosstown Cup in his bedroom I do I do yeah I look at it every night yeah I I I don't think the Cubs are going to win that um and this series is probably not going to be a lot of fun but uh the the Cubs have done a lot of good work in terms of improving that draft status they were, they were, you know, we can let them have a series with the Rockies, right? The Rockies are extraordinarily bad away from Coors Field, so this was this was going to be a tough one for the Cubs to keep pulling off in terms of uh, the the tanking. But they'll they'll get back to that this weekend. I think you can pretty safely bet on that, as the White Sox are quite good, and the Cubs are not. So, however it goes, um, enjoy your off day. We will talk to you guys on Sunday after the Cubs and White Sox wrap up. As always, hopefully some interesting stuff in terms of the guys we're looking for toward the future and maybe some more interesting going on at the minor league level that we can discuss. Uh, But either way, there will be plenty to discuss this weekend, and we will talk to you on Sunday. So as always, thank you guys for your support of the Cubs-related podcast. We will talk to you soon. Thank you, and as always, go Cubs.